And now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Luke chapter 3 and verse 9. This morning we discussed the fact that our Lord made it clear that John the Baptist was an exceedingly important man. The Lord said in Matthew chapter 11, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, you didn't go see that. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A man clothed in soft garments? He said, No, those who are clothed in soft garments are in king's houses. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A prophet? Jesus said, Yes, and much more than a prophet. And in Matthew chapter 11 and verse 14, he said, If you're willing to receive this, this is Elijah who was to come. John the Baptist was such an important person in God's scheme of redemption for man. This morning we made the point that there are three things to observe from Matthew 3 and Luke 3. The first one is a response to a revivalistic message. And that's what we discussed this morning, that response to it. Then the second thing that we're going to observe tonight is the role of repentance. How does it fit into John's message? How does it fit into what God expects from us today? And then number three is the result of rejecting the Lord and rejecting this message that he provided for us. Let me, um, just for a moment, review that first point, because I think it contains within it some points, some ideas that are very essential to tying all of this together. We began with Luke chapter 1 and verse 17, where Zacharias was told what kind of man John would be. He would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. He would call on people to make up their mind whose side they were on, just like Elijah did with those during the days of the prophets of Baal. He would also turn the hearts of the father to the children, which was a quote from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, how that fathers ought to be concerned about the direction in which they're leading their children. He would also turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. That is, he would focus them away from the sinful ways toward the right ways. And then he finally said that he would make a people ready for the Lord. He's going to lay the foundation, and we saw how that took place. And the fact that John the Baptist went to the very heart of the matter, preaching to the heart, which brings us to where I want to begin tonight, and that is the role of repentance. If you were to title John's lesson, if you were reading Matthew's account, he would say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you were reading Luke's account, Luke is going to emphasize repentance unto remission of sins. Just like we're baptized for the remission of sins, we repent 
unto or for the remission of sins. Repentance is a change of mind which results in a change of action, a change of conduct. It's when I change my mind about what I am doing and then I want to do differently. You know, there are people who have the sorrow of the world, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, where he speaks about the sorrow of the world works death. They're sorry they got caught. They've not changed their mind about what they did. They changed their mind about what happened from it. Real repentance is when people change their mind about what they did. And when you start looking at the passage found, I want you to turn with me now to Luke chapter 3. We're going to begin our reading in verse 10 and we'll read through verse 14. Luke chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. With the thought in mind, here's the role of repentance. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let them give to him who has none. And he said, He who has food, let him do likewise. Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. Let me make one observation here to begin with. People want straight answers. They don't want people to deal with abstracts and theories and difficulties that may be about other people. People want to know, what do I do? And specifically, what must I do? You know, it's real easy to talk about what the people are doing in California. It's easy to describe the problems of other people and never deal with reality with the people with whom you're working. And yet, so many do. John didn't do that. John dealt with where these people live. You know why we... This morning we went to James chapter 2, verses 22 through 25, where he says, Whoever looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and continues in it, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his doing. And then he describes, it's like a man looking in a mirror, seeing his natural face, going away and forgetting what man he is. And then it says, but whoever looks in this law, lets it reflect to him what he is, that's the man that's going to be blessed. John took the word and he reflected them. You're sinners. Now what are we going to do about it? What we're going to do is repent. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's look and see what it means. He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. What is a tunic? When I grew up as a boy in Alabama, we used to call them undershirts. You would wear a t-shirt under your top shirt. Today they're called t-shirts and they don't wear another shirt on top of them. But that's what a tunic was. 
It was an inner garment worn on the top part of the body. It was that part that was the closest to you. To have two of them was to be a very well-off person. And so he says, he who has tunics, let him give. He has two, give to him who has none. And he says, and food likewise. You got food? Share with him who has no food. Now I can hear some people saying, well, you mean that we have a responsibility to people out here who don't have? The answer is yes. Galatians 6 and verse 10 says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially those who are of the household of faith. But I can hear someone protest. But what about these people out here? Are you expecting me to take what I have worked for and earned and give it to someone else? That'll make them have more than I do. Listen carefully to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 12. For if there is first the willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what one does not have. Two things from that passage. Number one, if there is first a willing mind, the problem is for many people is selfishness. That's bottom line. Selfishness. You have two tunics? Well, I want both of them. I don't want anybody to have the other one. I have plenty of food. I don't want anybody else to have my food. Selfishness. If there's first the willing mind. Second of all, he said it is accepted according to what a man has and what not what he does not have. God does not expect you to give what you do not have. Our problem is we have it and we don't get it. John said that's what repentance means. Second thing he says there are tax collectors that are coming to him. And they're saying, what then must we do? You know, it's easy for us to read over passages like this in the Bible and not appreciate who these people are and what they do. I found a very good statement in the Urban's Dictionary to the Bible. And I thought it was so short, so concise, tells a story so well that it would be good for me to read that. This is what the dictionary says about a tax collector. It was a system of tax farming used by the Romans whereby the government auctioned off contracts to publicans. That's tax collectors. Who would pay the Romans out of their own pockets and then collect from the public as much as they wanted to recoup their investment. These greedy and cruel profiteers made their profit by collecting much more than they spent for their contracts. This system allowed for a constant abuses of the public. Now you think about that for just a moment. When you go to pay your property taxes, there has been an assessor who has valued the value of your property. And there is a formula which you pay. Everyone pays the same formula, the same rate, if you will. You think about when you go to the grocery store and you buy something and you pay your sales tax, 9.3 quarter percent, and they charge everybody that. 
Or you think about April 15th. I know I hate for some of you to think about that. A couple of weeks. But the government doesn't discriminate, if you will, on the fact that there are some people who you can say, well, I'm going to just get more out of you than I'll get out of someone else. These tax collectors would come to you and there may be a certain amount appointed for each individual. I'm going to just use an illustration. Let's just say it's $10. And so the Roman government says there's 100 people there and you collect $10 per person, so that's $1,000. And so the wealthy publican hands them $1,000 and then he goes out and he finds Stanley and he says, I think I can get $40 out of Stanley. And I think I can get $50 out of Larry. And next thing you know, instead of his getting back the $1,000, he's gotten back $10,000. And what could you do about it? Here he says to those tax collectors, they're wanting to know what must we do. And he says, collect no more than what is appointed for you. Just do what's right. Treat people fairly. Then the soldiers, they came and they asked, what must we do? Now the Jewish people were not soldiers in Caesar's army. These are Jewish soldiers who were assigned to the tax collectors. You see, you've got to have some enforcers to make sure that people pay what you tell them to pay. And so what they would do is they would intimidate people. And John says you don't intimidate anyone, nor accuse falsely. You see, you could say, this man didn't pay his taxes, when in reality he did. This man made more money than he said he made. You can accuse him falsely. He said, you don't accuse anyone falsely. You don't intimidate him. And be content with your wages. See, the discontent would mean, hey, if I do more, I can take more from the people. Just like the tax collectors, be honest, be fair, treat people right. Repentance requires a modification of behavior. When Paul appeared before Agrippa and Felix, Agrippa's the king, Felix is the governor, Paul is recounting what God had assigned him to do. And he said in Acts 26 and verse 20, but he declared first to those at Damascus and at Jerusalem throughout all the region of Judea, and to the Gentiles that they should repent and do works befitting repentance. Do works befitting repentance. Show people that you have repented by what you do. Now people who have problems and they repent, they correct those problems. Whatever that problem is in their life. Now we are to the third part of our lesson, the result of rejection. And what John does is when he sees these Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, 
He said to them, do not think to yourselves, we are children of Abraham. Now why in the world would that be such a challenge for them? The children of Israel had the chosen generation, the chosen nation syndrome. They believed that simply because they were Jewish, God would take care of them, regardless of how they lived. They believed it did not matter what they said, what they did, how they lived. God was going to take care of them. Let me ask you a question. Do you think Christians ever have this chosen generation syndrome? Where we believe that it really doesn't matter what we do, what we say, how we live, as if God will somehow just say, oh, I'm sorry, I saw you're a Christian. You get by without any charges whatsoever. Paul faced that in Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and verse 15. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Or as you read in the King James American, God forbid. For we who died to sin, how shall we live any longer in it? Drop down to verse 15 and he says, What then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. There were people in Paul's day who thought sin was no big deal. And you talk to people today, Oh, yeah, but we all sin. It's not a real big deal. My sins are not big sins. They're little sins. Really? In John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, then you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered to him, We are Abraham's descendants. You hear that come up again? We're Abraham's descendants. And we have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say unto you that he who commits sin is a slave, bondservant, sin. People don't realize sometimes that sin will grab a hold of you and hold you and not let you go. It had done that to the Pharisees and Sadducees in the first century and it will do it to us as well. Yes, we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. But folks, we need to realize sin is wrong in our lives just like it was wrong in their lives. So John challenges them. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Who told you that there's some wrath out there? God did. God has warned throughout the generations, that sinful behavior deserves punishment. And so John makes it personal and direct and forceful. 
He says, and even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. You've got to visualize in your mind a man standing with a big axe. He is standing at the foot of a fruit tree. You don't know what a fruit tree is. A tree that has some sort of fruit on it. And there's nothing on the tree. Or there's bad fruit on the tree. He's got the axe and he's already got it now laid at the root of the tree because we're not doing any pruning anymore. This is taking the tree down. That kind of figure was used by Jeremiah in the Old Testament in chapter 46. Let me just read a couple of verses. Verses 22 and 23. He said, For her noise shall go forth like a serpent. They shall march with an army and shall come against her with axes. Like those who chop wood, they shall cut down her forest, says the Lord. Though it cannot be searched, though they are innumerable, and more numerous than grasshoppers, God said, I'm going to send an army of choppers. Men with axes. Do you realize judgment day is coming? And for many people's lives, the axe is at the root of the tree right now. Ready to cut it down. In Luke chapter 13, verse 7. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down, for why does it use up the ground? Jesus said, Cut it down. I'm looking for fruit. Step back for just a moment, folks, each one of us, and let's ask, what fruit are we producing? What can we look at and say, I am producing in my life the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. I am Scattering the precious seed of the gospel. I'm trying to teach people to be saved from their sins. He said, if it is cut down, it will be cast into the fire. The fire is called hell. It's bad. Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 47. Jesus put it like this. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. For it is better for you to go into life maimed than having two hands to enter into hell fire where the fire is not quenched and where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He then talks about your foot. And then he talks about your eye. And he says, in all those cases where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
for those of you who have not yet obeyed the gospel. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8 still says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and who obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't want to be so harsh and so direct, but I don't think I would be faithful to preaching about John the Baptist if I didn't put it as plain as possible. If you do not become a Christian, you're going to be lost. In Second Peter chapter 3, he looks toward eternity and he says, But the heavens... And the earth which now are preserved by the same word and reserved for fire until the day of judgment for the perdition of ungodly men. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens being on fire will melt with fervent heat and the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. He wrote that to Christians. What is the result of rejecting the message? You're lost. You're lost. I think it's fitting that we preach a lesson to try to prepare for our gospel meeting. John was trying to prepare the people for the coming of Christ to receive the message that Jesus would preach. To, if you want to put it this way, to soften up the people so that when Jesus preached the gospel, it would sink down into good and honest hearts. If your heart's in the right place, nobody's going to have to beg you to attend the meeting. I don't want to be embarrassed on Monday night, two weeks from tomorrow night, when I walk in here and look around and say, where is everybody? You know why I say that? You know why I say that? Because of so many times I've walked in the auditorium and been embarrassed because people don't attend their own meeting. If your heart's in the right place and you can be here, you will be here. Would you open your songbook? Our Lord suffered a great amount. He went to the cross to provide salvation for us. And sometimes we may think that the response that the Lord demands out of us must be some great thing. Naaman thought that he must do something great. But he was simply told to go and dip himself in the River Jordan. You don't have to give lots and lots of money. You don't have to 
climb some great mountain. What you have to do is be baptized for the remission of your sins. The baptistry behind me is prepared. There are garments waiting. I know there are people here who need to obey the gospel. I don't know why you're waiting, but I hope that you make your decision soon. Folks, those of us who are Christians, I can't read your hearts, but I can see actions. And if your life is not right with the Lord, it's time for you to come home. As together we stand and sing.